It's really disturbing to me when I go to a professional tennis tournament and it's sponsored by one of these betting sites that I know my like social media traffic is coming from after I take a bad loss. Like that's a little bit unsettling to me sometimes. I think that sends the wrong message. It's like, hey, participate in this thing that's making people so angry at their player at our players that, you know, they're abusing them online. Everyone, John Wertheim here. It's this week's Sports Illustrated Tennis Podcast Beyond the Baseline. This week we have a WTA guest. It's Nicole Gibbs. She just got done practicing in Carson. We made her pull over to the side of the road like an LAPD officer, like chips, because uh, of bad audio quality. But uh, we got her looped in, and she was terrific. We talked about all sorts of topics. If you follow her on Twitter, you know a bit about some of her extra tennis interests and activities. Not a Donald Trump fan, Nicole Gibbs. We talk a little bit about that. Um, nice conversation. So I'm going to uh, tell our trusty producer, Jamie Lasanti, to press the right buttons. Let's put her on right now. Here's Nicole Gibbs. It is December 5th. What's your, uh, what's your, you, you got four more weeks, three and a half more weeks. What's your, uh, what's your off season been like? Yeah, um, I got a little bit of a late start on the off season. I played pretty much until the end of November, but I was able to kind of take a week off during Necker Cup the week before the Hawaii WTA at the end of the year. So I kind of treated Hawaii as my first week of really intensive training. Um, so I just completed my second week. I've been spending a lot of time in the gym. This is my second week of two sessions in the gym per day and one session of tennis. So I'm just really trying to get my fitness base strong and um, make sure I'm keeping my timing and working on the right things on the court. You did Necker Cup and Hawaii. <laughs> yeah, I That's know. That's a good not double. Tough, right? and yeah, that, not uh, bad. Island that, hopping. That wasn't even your off season. What, what, um, for those who don't know, how do you describe Necker Cup? It's it's a little bit tough to describe if you haven't been to the event. It's pretty um, phenomenal experience. Just basically a bunch of tennis pros hanging out out with a, a bunch of people who love tennis on a private island with Sir Richard Branson. So it was a it was a really really incredible experience, and I, I'm very thankful to have been invited. And I'm hoping that the invites will keep rolling in in the coming years. How'd you play? Um, you know, I did not fare so well in the actual Necker Cup. It was not my best tennis, but <laughs> um, I, I think I was enjoying the other elements of the island, like kite surfing and sailing a little bit more than the, the actual tennis at times. That should be a mandatory event on the WTA calendar, I'm thinking. Yeah, no, I'm not against that. The I was thinking it was a year ago that you wrote your famous Facebook post. That was like this time last year, wasn't it? Yeah, you know, my boyfriend actually asked me a couple of days ago. He was like, "So, are you going to write something yeah, exactly. like recapping your year?" Your boyfriend, your boyfriend's um, preempting my questions. You going to write something recapping yeah. your year? You know, I, I don't know whether I am or not. Like, I, I definitely would want it to be a really authentic feeling thing. Um, I don't want it to be like, "Oh, I wrote one last year, so I should write something this year," because that's not. Um, it wasn't contrived last year. It was just how I was feeling at the time. So. Uh, I don't know that I necessarily will, but I do want to get writing again. I haven't been doing my blogs with the WTA. I've been tanking, just been busy outside of that. So um, 
I haven't taken the time to really work on the writing stuff, but that's something I really want to get back into and kind of push myself to really keep developing. For, for those who don't know, your your post last year was, I don't have it in front of me, but essentially it was, um, I get knocked down, I get up again. Would that be accurate? Yeah. Um, yeah, in summary, <laughs> and and you had a great, you know, and you you had a you had a nice year. You had a very nice first ninety days of the year after exactly after posting that. Is that um is that is that correlation or causation? I mean, is it is it too simplistic to say uh, the response you got from that post really motivated you? Um, yeah, I think there were a number of things, a number of things going on. I think a lot of my optimism at the end of last year stemmed from the fact that. I had just started a really, really positive and productive um, coaching relationship with my coach, Roger Smith. So I think he had already given me that spark to really pick myself up and, you know, turn things around and kind of change the downward momentum that I had been experiencing early in 2015. Um, So I think the post was kind of in reference to like all of those things happening and then me finding a little bit of hope at the end of the year and playing a little bit better and really feeling like I, I was in control of you know, not just my game, but kind of my life again, which was a really powerful feeling for me. And I think that carried over very well into the early part of my 2016 season. Um, you know, after the first few months, it was a little bit tricky for me because I actually I sprained my hand my very first week on clay in Madrid. And that really set me back. It, it made Europe um, kind of uh a wasted few weeks in terms of my career. And then um, when I, when I came back to the hard courts, it just took me a while to get going with my confidence again. So, you know, I'm just really hoping for a healthy and productive 2017, but I, I definitely, um, you know, I'm very optimistic of, uh, about what I, what I know I can do in light of my first few months in 2016. Your hand, the hand sprain is not an injury we hear very frequently. How did that, that was your dominant hand to your right hand? Yeah, I was on my right hand. It was just really unlucky. I was practicing um, the day after my match in Madrid. I lost a tight one um, to a girl who made the semis that week out of qualies or maybe quarters. Um, so it was a good match, and I was practicing the next day, and I was in an off-site location, and the clay just wasn't up to the same quality that the, the main site was, and so my foot just drove straight into the clay when I was trying to go for a slice backhand, and I fell really awkwardly and landed on my hand. And I finished the practice. I did like another hour or so on it, but I was like, this doesn't feel right. And it just kind of got worse over the next month or two. And so I was playing through a lot of pain, both in, um, in Roland Garros and in Wimbledon and um, had to rely on cortisone to even be able to show up at um, the grass court events. So it was just a little bit of an uphill battle during that time. Really unlucky. Um, I was kind of like joking with myself, you know, it's tough to, you know, get up and go practice the day after uh, a tough loss. So I was like, well, maybe I just should have tanked, <laughs> you know, and then I wouldn't have been injured. But uh, that's how it goes sometimes. There's no tanking in tennis. If you, uh, <laughs> that, that um, the, the injury notwithstanding, you're, you, you feel how about your, your 2016? Yeah, I mean, I have really mixed feelings. I obviously started out um, pretty strong. I felt like I was, growing as a player at a really exponential rate um and then a combination of not being comfortable on surfaces over in Europe and the hand sprain really kind of slowed my role and I think I lost a little bit of that confidence and belief that I had early in the year 
Um, so it was a mixed bag. It's definitely something that I feel like I can learn from. Um, my coach and I are making some, I think, really important changes, both in my game and my equipment this year. I um, changed rackets within Wilson to something that I think will help my game style a lot more. I'll be getting easier power. Um, and then also we're, we're budgeting, you know, a week or two prior to the clay season to go train in Spain, which I think will be incredible for um, me to learn not to fall over and sprain my hand on clay. <laughs> Watch out for that hand sprain. Are you, are you, um, is this done independently or is this done through USDA? Uh, is what? The trip to Spain. Um, is, that, is that something I you two arranged to you? They, yeah, they have, they have a relationship with BTT over there, um, which is who I think, we're planning to go train with um if that works out um so it's sort of usta affiliated but it'll just be me and roger going you attended the cult known as uh stanford can i ask you <laughs> college tennis do you have do you have regrets when I mean, you you look back on that and I'm, i know you, you had a wonderful time at school but is that is that something that you think about in the context of your career do you do you wish you had turn pro when you were 17 18 are you happy with how you played your hand oh my gosh not at all zero regrets about going to stanford um if anything i'm a little bit bummed that i don't already have my degree in hand i think that was one of the best decisions i've ever made for myself um at the time i went to school i had actually skipped 10th grade with the idea being that i would leave um high school a year early and take a year in between high school and college to see if I wanted to make it on tour. But when I was 17, I just felt like my body wasn't developed enough. I wasn't going deep enough in tournaments consistently. So I was like, you know what? I'm just going to go to Stanford a year early. So by the time I came out after three years, I was only 20 years old. And I feel like that was the perfect timing for me in terms of launching my career. And I don't think I could have been particularly effective on tour much earlier than that maybe 19 but definitely not at 17 when I first went all right let me put this to you another way I I can't figure out for the life of me why a player with an opportunity to play college tennis for a year or two wouldn't take advantage of that you can always go pro after a year in some cases after two years you can go back and get your degree you've got something to fall back on you've got college experience you're playing at Stanford so it's not like you're hitting against the wall you're still getting good practice can you take me through the process a thought process that you did not engage in but I I can't figure out why anybody wouldn't play college tennis especially with careers extending and starting so late now yeah I'm asking you to defend something you didn't do but you know sorry go ahead sorry no, I'm asking you to defend no, no, something no. that you did not do, so I realize that's absurd. But uh, but I'm, I, I can't figure out the life of me yeah. while you would just go right to the Pro Tour. Yeah, I think um, things have changed a little bit since I made the decision. I think um, it was a little bit perhaps more unusual to go to school for a year or two when I did it just because there was that sentiment that as a woman you would be peaking at 22, 23 years old. So it was just the very beginning of that transition of seeing um, players in their late 20s and even sometimes in their early 30s really peaking on tour. So I think oftentimes people kind of felt that they had a a really short time frame um, in order to really establish themselves on tour. And so there was this like external pressure of, you know what, I really need to get out there and I'm not a serious tennis player if I go to college was kind of the stigma around it. Um, and that's actually something I battled a lot 
um, in my time, you know, going through juniors at an elite level was, uh, is this girl really serious about her tennis because she keeps saying that she wants to go to college? I think that stigma has kind of lifted a little bit. Um, so I think it's different now, but I think at the time, that's why a lot of players were opting to go pro is the feeling of it would be like giving up on my tennis career or something if I went to college. I never really agreed with that, but I think there was that external pressure. Now I think people are tending to make um, less, um, less externally motivated decisions, I think, uh, you have a couple exceptions of like a CC Bellas or a Kayla Day who have had you know a phenomenal amount of success on tour prior to age 18, and so great for them. They're already established. Let's try it on tour. But for the vast majority of players, I think um, they are considering co- college as a viable option. Good. I, I just. Good, good answer. I, I just think you, you look at this every way. You, you look at it in terms of life experience. You look at it as a financial decision. I, I just can figure out why you wouldn't at least go for a year like Noah Rubin did or, or two years or three years like you did. Yeah, I mean, obviously, obviously I agree with you because that's the path I took. I mean, there was no way Stanford would have let me within 100 miles of their campus if I hadn't played tennis there. So I knew that my, my tennis was going to afford me incredible opportunities if I – if I chose to go to school. So um, I made that investment, and I, I think I'm going to be really thankful for that after my tennis career. I'm going to, I'm going to segue here to a random one. But I, I did a story sure. many moons ago, and uh, we've, we've stayed in touch. He's a great guy. We stayed in touch with um, a basketball player, Baron Davis. Went to Crossroads. Yeah. He went to Crossroads and yeah. spent half the interview telling me Crossroads stories about who got picked up in a limo and, and who was in his class but then got casted and had to go to New Zealand. That is your high school as well. Give, give me your best crossroads story. Oh, man. You know, I spent so little time there, I can barely tell you. You didn't have I literally, any? Uh... Um, I had, like, a modified schedule. So I was going to school 8 to 12, and all of that was just classroom time. And then I was leaving at lunch to go train for six hours. So um, I did not... I was not on campus as much as I would have liked to be, but it was just crazy the the density of just famous people who were at the school. I think like Glenn Fry's kid was the year below me, and Julia Louise Dreyfus's kid was in one of my dad's English classes. My dad actually taught there as well, so it was just crazy. Like you'd be on campus and see a different celebrity every day. There was a Jack Quaid, Dennis Quaid, and Meg Ryan's kid was also in my grade, and you know I went on my like senior year retreat with him so it was just like crazy in that sense it was very hollywood i didn't i should have said crossroads is sort of the the choice high school for uh for hollywood types um and yeah i'd heard the story that you know goldie hawn would be sitting next to uh exactly like you said dennis quaid and goldie hawn would be sitting next to each other at the you know at the recorder recital i didn't know did your dad still teach there he doesn't. He um he followed my mom out to Iowa where she got a job, so he's a little bit miserable living in that climate again. But uh, I think they'll make it back out to L.A. eventually. Whoa! I did not know your your folks live in Iowa now. Yeah, they live in Iowa, and I'm actually awful. They live they've lived there for a couple of years, and I have not yet made it to visit, which is like terrible. They've been out to L.A. several times, um, so I feel like I. I'm getting my brownie points seeing the family, but I really need to make it out. I'm going to make a point of that this coming year. Watch how I do this transition. So <laughs> speaking speaking of Iowa, I wanted to ask you about Madison Keys, who lives in uh, 
the Quad Cities, right on the Iowa border. Yes. Who? Um, yes. I don't know if you saw the story last week that she had the, you know, she, she's taking up this cause of anti-bullying, and and I think a lot of this is sort of cyberbullying, you know, and I, bullying I, on social media. I saw the headline. I saw the headline. I didn't open the article yet. I was planning to read it this week, though. Um, very nice story, and and it's you know this is as initiatives go. This is this was a new one, but I think it's sorely needed. Are, is this something that you deal with? I mean, I'm always amazed by how pe- people show me that the social messages that that athletes get, even you know, athletes that lose matches and in, in tennis. And uh, is this something you deal with that that you get these horrible messages when you when you don't win matches? Yeah, I mean, virtually daily. Like, <laughs> I I got a message like three days ago. I didn't even play yourself. I didn't play or anything and it said kill yourself so it's just like these things stream in like semi-regularly and I think if you don't view it with humor or kind of just disregard it it can be very toxic um, to your psyche um, obviously but it is it is a really big problem I think um, because it's just it's this very unregulated world in which people can basically just say whatever they want to you and they know that at some level they're getting to you and it's really hard to find a way around that other than like outsourcing your social media and saying you know what I don't want to deal with this so I'm going to have my agent run my account or something like that but I I don't want to do that personally because I like being authentic with my positive fans but there are days where it's very challenging and you almost just don't even want to have a public appearance um on social media just because of all of the negativity and hate mail that you get what do you think it you think it's just someone now has a way to connect with you that they didn't have five years ago or or do you think the the other theory i've heard is that these are people that are gamblers and and wagered money on your matches and a hundred percent the majority are losing money betting on you holding serve at five four or something like that so when that doesn't happen they lose a thousand dollars or something on the match then they just want to you know write these terrible things about you but it just occurs to me as so immature and just I, I I can't really wrap my head around what would possess someone to sit behind a keyboard and write some of the things that I've received like you wouldn't even I, I can't even talk about some of the things that have been written to me it's like every word in the book every four-letter word every death threat that you can imagine they just roll in with semi-frequency and it, it it really does feel unfair sometimes because it's like you can't really you can't control it you can't really fight back you can like block these people but for everyone you block right. there are going to be 10 right. more so it's just a little bit out of control it also strikes me you're 23 years old and clearly well adjusted and spent three years at stanford if you're 17 years old and it, it might be a little bit of a different equation that seems like you, I mean, it seems like it bothers you and you're clearly uh self-possessed i can't imagine getting you know i can't imagine getting social media messages like that when i was when i was 17 well you have to imagine also that it's in all of your absolute lowest moments that you're getting the majority of these messages there are some rare events where someone will bet against you and so when you win they'll try to tear you down but that's more just like that's hilarious you know because it's like <laughs> yeah, you right, can't make right. me feel bad right now no oh, matter you really how got me yeah exactly oh bummer that you think i'm this word and that word um but the the tough thing is when you know you have a really tough match and maybe 
out of a sense of, okay, well, I'm not just going to post things when I win. I want to be like, you know, open with my fans or something like that. You open, open your social media and you have all this hatred kind of, um, filtering in like when you're in this moment of kind of vulnerability that's when it's really really problematic i think and it it, it bears noting that is definitely not just in the sports world or not just in the tennis world specifically um like i was just listening to the radio this morning and ryan seacrest was talking about how selena gomez had to get rid of her phone for three months because she was just so um like depressed from the toxicity of social media and like all these people who wanted to say mean things about her. So this is not local to tennis. It's really a pervasive problem. But it strikes me as, I mean, so I don't know if you saw Leslie Jones, for example, someone else on Saturday Night Live, just Uh had a brutal social media experience. But I, but I feel like the fact that yours is, it, it goes to the nature of what you do. So it's not just yeah. these ad hominem attacks, but they're attacks about your profession, I think, is a different dynamic than just Ryan Seacrest, you suck, or so-and-so, you're ugly. But um, is yeah, WTA no, I doing totally anything? agree. And there are definitely moments in which, um, you know, maybe maybe your forehand felt shaky in the match and someone was like, you know, writes on your account, like, wow, you literally can't hit a forehand to save your life. You should pick up another profession. You're like, wow, maybe they're right. <laughs> you know, yeah, exactly. like, there's no, definitely that exactly. moment of like, that's a little too real. Right. Um, I mean, I'm like you, I don't, I don't know what one does about this. And I don't know if the WTA is, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know what can be done here, but uh, it yeah, just I mean, like I don't know what they can really do. Yeah. This is not something you're forced to deal with. In my opinion, one of the things that can be done, it's really disturbing to me when I go to a professional tennis tournament and it's sponsored by one of these betting sites that I know my like social media traffic is coming from after I take a bad loss. Like that's a little bit unsettling to me sometimes. I hate seeing betting sites being marketed um, as like a title sponsor or, you know, one of the principal sponsors that's plastered all over a WTA event. I really don't. I don't like that. I think that um, sends the wrong message. It's like, hey, participate in this thing that's making people so angry at their player at our players that you know they're abusing them online. I think that's way to one way to abate the cycle. But then again, you know, money talks, so it's a little bit difficult to just say you know cut out the entire betting industry as sponsors. But um, for me, that's the only thing that really jumps out as being a little bit weird. I'll I'll throw this one at you as long as you brought it up. What about the fact uh-huh. that if you patronized one of these betting sites, you might be banned? You, you basically, players, media coaches often have to sign vows saying they will not uh, wager on matches by the very same companies that are sponsoring the tournament. Go figure. Yeah, no, um, I, I think there's a, a tangible amount of irony mm-hmm. to that. Um I'm tangibling that irony. All right, let me ask you about your social media account because you've used it uh, to, to great effect and great entertainment, but you also used it, of course, in advance of the presidential election here. You did not sponsor. Uh, <laughs> you, you were not supportive of the um, the man who is our president-elect. Where, where are you in sort of the, the stages of grief? Um, you know, I think in the days after the election, um, my main goal was to kind of take it with maturity and say, okay, you know, it's done. What can we do now to be proactive and 
have a role in government that extends just beyond who our president-elect is. Um, however, in recent days, with some of the appointments to higher office, with along with like Steve Bannon and Ben Carson and a number of other characters that I also would not have been casting votes for, um, I have been continually kind of disillusioned with what I think this uh, presidency is going to mean. Um, however, I... I reject the idea of just kind of giving up because, you know, your presidential cabinet is not what you want it to be. I think um, in order to be an effective citizen and an effective participant of democracy, you have to make sure that you're still voicing your opinions and um, voting on things that extend beyond presidency. So that's kind of where I am right now. What, what does that mean in practical terms for you? Um, in practical terms, I think that means for me, at least, getting involved with causes that I believe in. Um, I tweet, of, not that tweeting really matters for anything, but I tweet a lot about causes like Black Lives Matter, um, equality for, for women. Um, and I really do want to get more and more engaged in those kind of like social causes that I, I care deeply about. Um, so I think that's also going to be a really big off-court goal for me in 2017 is like, okay, you know, I've been able to talk the talk, so to speak, but let's really put some weight behind some of the things I'm saying and invest some of my time and energy into really um, investing in what I believe to be right. Does that, are you worried that comes at a price to your tennis? Um, no, I don't. I think, you know, my agent would prefer I didn't talk about politics at times. Um, obviously, there are certain brands that, um, might be put off by the fact that I'm polarizing or, you know, some fans might not respect me because they don't share my political views. Um, I think there's no need for me to be hyper specifically political now that this election is over. Obviously, I care deeply about trying to get um, Hillary Clinton elected as the first woman president. And so I felt um, it would have been inauthentic not to be um, kind of vocal about about her and her campaign. Um, but now I think there's a way for me to toe the line a little bit more where I focus more on social justice causes and a little bit less on who said what in politics. Um, and just really, uh, you know, it, ultimately I, I genuinely believe that being authentic to myself and working on things that um, matter to me outside of tennis actually helps my tennis because it inspires me and makes me feel like more of a full person who's contributing to society at a greater level than just knocking some yellow balls around a court. I, I can't tell you how often I hear that of, of players who have other interests um, who do that you like like you do who do things like writing or, or take on social issues or want to do crossword puzzles. Just because yeah. they, they they feel as though they, they need to do something more than uh, run around these rectangles hitting fuzzy balls. Is that something? Yeah, no. I mean, what's the nature of that? Go ahead. I mean, where, where does that, where, what do you think the, um, I mean, I think, you know, you talk, the, the balance is I can't spread myself too thin, and this is my athletic career, and I can't be juggling 100 balls, and I have to remember what it is that is sort of I do for a living. But um, it, it, it also seems to me more now more than ever, there's this, real urge to diversify and to have interest in other pursuits and do things that don't have to do with tennis. Is, is that the nature of the sport? Is there, I mean, what, what do you think is going on there? 
Yeah, so I'm not sure what it is for other people, but I know for me, um, I just, I've always been such a huge proponent of balance. Um, And I think that's why I stayed in school so much longer than the majority of my peers is I just really believed that I had more to offer than just, um, you know, athletic ability. And maybe that's because I wasn't as talented as like a Sloan Stevens. And so maybe it was like, subconsciously hedging my bets and making sure I have other things to fall back on. But I actually think um, that it's a little bit more proactive than that. It's like, you know what, I'm going to be really good at this one thing, but I want to be good at other things too. And I want to feel like a full person and I want to go to bed knowing that I'm giving my best to the world. And, you know, at the end of the day, um, sports are incredible and they're a microcosm for life, but it can also be a really empty pursuit if you don't tie it to meeting, meaning off the court. Um, ultimately, what do I do for a living? I run around and hit tennis balls across the net. I mean, as, as fun as that is and as fun as it sounds, um, there's not a whole lot of substance to it sometimes. Obviously, you come through incredible matches sometimes where you show a lot of heart and a lot of grit, and I live for those matches. But there are other other times where you're really not feeling like you're offering anything tangible. And I, I think that's why I have always put so much emphasis on balance, having a social life outside of the tennis courts, having an intellectual life, expressing my opinions, whether political or social justice related. Like it just helps me to feel a little bit more whole sometimes. You know, it's funny you say that because I, I was looking at your schedule. Um, I was looking at your results before and it strikes me sort of the wild swings, the same way you, you, you talk about your career. It seems there, there are sort of wild swings in the scale of what you're doing. So one week it's you're playing Grand Slams and there's a lot of money at stake and these are big, fancy venues. And then the next week you could be playing for significantly less money. I, mean, I, I think you played French Open, then you played an event where you won 800 bucks, and then you were at Wimbledon. <laughs> what are those swings? Yeah, that sounds I mean, about right. You, um, you know, but even yeah, I've been looking even at your fall schedule and – you're playing in major cities of the world and some not major cities, and you're playing for high stakes and suddenly not high stakes, especially given your sense of perspective and balance. How do you deal with that? And how, I mean, I'm just analogizing that to other professions where, you know, you're, you're at huge, huge stakes, lawsuits and litigation. And the next week you're in small claims court. I mean, how, how do you deal with those swings in scale? Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, it definitely makes sense. I, I think there are definitely some letdowns in, in the year that you have to manage. Obviously, the week after a Grand Slam, you're not going to be playing another Grand Slam. So you're going to be going to a much smaller venue, likely much smaller prize money, unless you do exceptionally well. Um, so you definitely have to manage that. I think um, the most important thing is to not hyper-focus on what points or viewership or money is available at a tournament. Easier said than done, obviously. Um, but you have to maintain like a consistent trajectory. And for me, um, what makes me motivated every single week is knowing that I'm adhering strongly to a process that is going to pay dividends at the big events. You're not going to come out and play well at the big events if you haven't been putting in the work the rest of the year. So that's kind of the perspective I take is, you know, all these matches that I'm playing, um, that, feel like nobody's watching and there are no points on the line and there's no money on the line. Um, Those are helping me to get to a place with my tennis where I'm able to perform under huge amounts of pressure with huge money on the line. So that that's kind of the way I have to manage it. 
You sound entirely too rational to be a professional athlete. Um, <laughs> uh, the um, let, let's close here. Twenty twenty seventeen is a good year for Nicole Gibbs. If blank, I mean, what uh, what are you looking forward to? What's what's going to determine success in the next twelve months? Uh, this is going to be so boring. So it's almost a bummer to end on. But honestly, it's just if I've committed to the things that are going to make me into a better tennis player in the long run. So for me, that means hitting the ball harder, taking more time away, finishing more points at the net. Um, I, I really think that if I commit to the things that my coach and I are working on, the sky is the limit for me. Um, I want to see myself into the top 20, and then I want to see where I can go from there. You got to get back to writing. Can I nag you? <laughs> yeah, I think honestly that's another that's another part that would make uh, 2017 successful. At least uh, I'm sure the WTA site would uh, would think so because they've been asking me if I'm ever going to write again. I'm I'm like I'm not sure. <laughs> we're we're going to nag you. This is the editor and us. Get back to writing. Oh, okay. Get, <laughs> yeah, get that okay, laptop cooking. Um, this was fun. Thanks. Uh, thanks so much. We'll. Uh, We'll see you in Australia. Enjoy these next few weeks, and uh, let's see what happens in 2017. Thanks so much for having me. It was fun. Take care. Thanks. All right. Special thanks to Nicole Gibbs. Very nice conversation. That's a player to root for. That's a player to follow on social media as well, unless you're one of those trolls. Um, That's this week's Sports Illustrated Tennis Podcast. I'm John Wertheim. Our producer, as always, is Jamie Lasanti. We'll do one or two more of these for 2016 and then shut it down before starting up in advance of the Australian Open. Keep the suggestions coming. They're always welcome. We try to accommodate as many of those as possible, especially when tennis gets back in swing and players are a little more accessible. We will uh, we will take more of those into account. But again, special thanks to Nicole Gibbs, and we'll be back in seven days. All right, have a good week, everyone. Mm-hmm.